Oh man, good morning everybody. It is good to be with you today. I'm opening up God's Word. We're continuing uh, in a series through an Old Testament book called Nehemiah, which I introduced last week. Um, my, I'm not sure how many of us have read Nehemiah before. My guess is, is um, it's not a, your first stop when it comes to devotional reading. Um, if you've never explored it before, though, it is a powerful story of fresh hope and restoration. If you, like most people right now, are feeling some combo of exhausted, discouraged, anxious, emotionally numb, then I want you to see in this book how God meets his people in the midst of their despair. And don't you know, we have the same God today. Absolutely. And so as we run into this, we're calling this series Ruined to Restoration. Because each Sunday we're going to see exactly how God in his steadfast love infuses his people with hope and works through them to rebuild their city. This story shows what God can do when his people believe that he wants to work in and through them. My question is why not us? Why not now? So before I jump right in, I want, I want us to consider a question together. Something to just mull around in your own heart and mind for a second. Are there broken situations around you or in you that you have a hard time believing will ever heal? When you think about your life personally, your relationships, or maybe our communities, our society... Are there any areas where you've given up hope that the status quo can get any better? Now hold on to that and ponder that for a second. And as you do, I'm going to provide a brief recap of, of where we are in Nehemiah. Because if you didn't get a chance to catch last week's message on Nehemiah chapter 1, or you have a short memory like I do, uh, it's worth taking the time to, to remember what exactly is going on before we just dive right in this week. Plus, it's just worth anybody who was here last week, we learned by refreshing ourselves, right? So the year of Nehemiah, 445 B.C., where the Persian world under King Artaxerxes ruled the Middle East from as far east as Greece all the way to India. A huge empire, but the focus of Nehemiah is not on the powerful. It goes and zooms into a small corner of that empire Jerusalem, where we meet these Jews who have stopped trying to rebuild their city. Why? Well, to understand why they're in a state of despair in Jerusalem, we need to go back to centuries before. When the Jewish people were once a flourishing nation, under King David, they, they ultimately gained peace by defeating their enemies. Under King Solomon, they built a glorious temple to the Lord. But after Solomon died, the people of God turned their backs on God. The nation split into two. The northern kingdom was utterly wicked. They were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The southern kingdom, though they had some righteous kings, eventually turned their back on God as well. God patiently sent his prophets saying, come back to me, come back to me. But they ignored him time and time again until eventually God's removed his presence from Jerusalem. And then in 8 
I'm sorry, 586 BC. Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and carried God's people off into exile. And really, this is a fulfillment of what God said he would do. He promised them, he says, guys, if, all the way back in Deuteronomy, if you will obey my law, your nation will flourish. But if you turn your backs on me and go your own way and worship the other gods, he says, then you will end up scattered among the nations. And so they were. But as we talked about last week, this wasn't the end of the story, was it? We have a God of steadfast love. He says, even though you might be scattered, I will gather you again. And 70 years, just 70 years after they are scattered to the nations, we see King Cyrus and Persia come and destroy Babylon. And then he issues a decree in 539 B.C. that the Jews are able to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their city. And so they do just that. And they go and they first rebuild the temple. And when they turn their attention to now rebuild the outer walls around Jerusalem, the defense walls, the enemies of Israel pinned a letter to the king and said, Hey, king, if you, they get strong enough, they're going to revolt against you. And so king, who is Artaxerxes at the time, says, Whoa, 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 cease and desist, stop building. And this is bad news. Because as we talked about last week, an ancient city without defense walls is like a city today without a solid, well-trained law enforcement. It's the Wild West. It's how do you build out of poverty when you live in constant insecurity. But in the midst of that, God knows a man named Nehemiah who lives a thousand miles away in the Persian capital of Susa. He's the Jewish cupbearer to the king. And God shares his heart of compassion with Nehemiah that motivates Nehemiah to, to then take action. And he asks the king, King, can I go back and rebuild the walls? And miraculously, kings don't reverse the decrees. He said yes, though. He gave them the permission. And and even the resources to go back to Jerusalem and to begin this project. There is hope. However, the next challenge may be even more difficult for Nehemiah than getting the king's permission. And that now he needs to convince the Jewish people that they can actually build the walls. Because I want you to think about this for a second. The Jews returned in 539 B.C. It is now 445 B.C. That is a length of 94 years. That means for 94 years, the Jews who have been living in Jerusalem have been stepping around the ruined walls. 94 years, they have been living in constant insecurity in their own home. 94 years, they have been living in poverty in an uncertain future. I want you to imagine that for a second. Imagine that you and I, since 1926, that's 94 years if I did my math right, 1926, imagine we lived in a community that had no sufficient law enforcement. Would we have a hard time believing that things could get any better? Yeah, we would. So how do you think they felt? The despair, the hopelessness. But many of us, we don't have to think too hard. Because there's a lot of us in here who've been walking around ruins for a long time. We've been walking around broken marriages, dysfunctional families, emotional wounds. It's starting to just feel like the status quo. 
How long have we, as those who live in New England, just said, instead of believing that people can come to know Jesus and grow rooted in Him, we just sigh because, well, New England, no one has a foundation of who Jesus is anymore. It's New England after all. I mean, anybody with me? How many of us have gotten to a point where the ruins have become normal? Status quo. And listen, I know that we're, many of us are tired. We're discouraged. We're frustrated. Trust me, I've been there too. <laughs> Even this week. But I want to challenge us to look at the status quo again. And say, God... Is there something that you wish to give us the faith to restore again? Is there something that you, we've given up on believing can change that you actually want to change? You guys with me? And even if you're somebody who's like, I'm not sure I can believe today. You know what? That's okay. Let's start there. But once we realize that God never meant the ruins to be status quo, restoration can begin. Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's turn there together. We're going to be at verse 9. If you have your own Bibles. Nehemiah is about a third of the way through our Bibles. If you want to look for it in your own, it comes after 1st, 2nd Chronicles and Ezra, before Esther and Job. And we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2, starting at verse 9. Lord, may you speak to us through your word. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, that is beyond the Euphrates River, heading toward Jerusalem, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass." Then I went up, to the night, went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said to me, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of this, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven, everybody say God of heaven, will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Somebody say amen to that. 
Let's pray. Father, I give this to you, and I pray that these will be your words, that you will speak powerfully. God, I, I have, you know my own struggles. You know my own frustrations. You know my own temptations to despair. But I know who you are. And as we lift our eyes up to you, may you open our hearts, our minds, and allow us to believe again. Not just know about you and your word, but actually be motivated, inspired, compelled by your spirit within us to be your church. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. I'm already fired up. So after a thousand plus miles... Nehemiah just traveled from Susa all the way to Jerusalem, which took roughly a month. And he shows up finally to Jerusalem with an entourage from the king and a letter of permission to begin building this wall. But when he shows up in Jerusalem, there's no welcoming party. There's actually the opposite. And we'll get to meet these, uh, this opposition here in a little while. But as Nehemiah steps into this city that for 94 years has been stepping around ruins. As he begins to face this mammoth of a task, what does he do first? I want us to see the wisdom of God and the way that he responds here. If, if you and I, if you, some of you, you're feeling that holy irritation within you to shift something. You're feeling that desire to be a part of some change, to follow God, to see something shift in the way things are done. But where should we even consider starting? Well, first, restoration can begin after we pause to face the reality of the ruins and make a wise plan. Face the reality, make a plan. So after months of prayer, Weeks of travel. Nehemiah finally shows up in Jerusalem. But what's the first thing he does? Get out his measuring tape? No. Rally the people? No. Don't miss this. Verse 11. It says that he showed up in Jerusalem for three days. What's he doing for three days? A whole lot of nothing. He's resting. Did you see that coming? I didn't. (laughs) He's resting. Before he begins to step out into anything, he just traveled a thousand miles. It took him over a month. He's exhausted. And see, the wisdom I see in this is that when we're worn out, it's tough to see any problem with a clear perspective. Some of us live in a constant state of adrenaline and hurry. And if we do that, eventually the exhaustion will cloud our perspective, multiply our anxiety, and cause everyone around us to become a burden. And if Nehemiah in his day needed to take time to rest, how much more do we need to learn how to rest in ours? That we feel the constant pressure of contemporary life. To, to, to Come on, keep going, keep going, keep going. For those of you who've been working at home with a family, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's easy for, for life just to crowd out any space we have to just be still, to be with God, to rest. But you see what Nehemiah is doing. Is that from the moment he gets to Jerusalem, he accepts he's not God. He has human limitations. 
And wisdom says, you and I, we need to develop healthy rhythms of rest in our lives if we are going to be in it for the long haul. I'm not getting any amens with that. That's okay. That's okay. If that challenged you like it challenged me, then I understand why. But then after he's fresh, after Nehemiah is fresh, now he turns to go examine the problem. And how, and how does he do that? What example does he give us first? Well, first, before opening himself up to any other voices, he quietly listens for God. It says that after those three days, he steps out in the dark cover of night. Secretly, he doesn't open himself up to anybody yet. See, God placed Jerusalem on Nehemiah's heart from the beginning. And Nehemiah knows that his success depends upon remaining in a state of listening to God. I don't know about you, but if you ever experienced when you actually step out to try to make a change, either in your life or in society, it opens up this myriad of, of well-meaning opinions all of a sudden speaking into your life. Well, Nehemiah knows that his success depends on staying tight to the voice of God. And so he goes out in the quiet of night. It's vital that we learn the difference between when it's time to act and it's time to pray. And as he steps out, though, he also realizes that he wisely invites a few trusted confidants to discern with him. You notice he says that he, when he goes out in secret, but he does bring a few others with him. We don't know necessarily what these other men were doing, but we know that they must be men of t integrity and they must be men of discretion. You and I weren't meant to go at life alone. We weren't meant to go through the challenges alone. And sometimes we need those people in our lives, whether it's our friends or our small group, people who love Jesus too, who are going to come and tell us the truth when we need to hear it and encourage us when we're down and be praying for us, even if they don't fully understand what we're going through. We all need that. Then, as Nehemiah approaches this prayerfully, discerning with a few others, then he's able to see the problems around him for what they were, not for what he wanted them to be. Nehemiah didn't go to the wall and say, what's the cheapest way to do this? What's the fastest way to do this? What's the easiest way to do this? He said, what's the right way to do this? And as he begins to examine these walls, I want us to understand what, kind of what he does. If we throw up a, a map of Jerusalem, I don't know if you guys can see that very well. Um, Hopefully, with those watching at home, you can see a little bit better. But this is a, a picture of what Jerusalem looked like after the walls would have been built in Nehemiah's day. I don't know if you can see it very well, but the very top of that picture, the northern part of Jerusalem, those walls would have been utterly destroyed by the time Nehemiah got in there. The southern walls that come down to this tip at the bottom of the screen, they would have been mostly destroyed, but there still would have been some rubble hanging out. Around there. And we know that, that Nehemiah, the text says, goes out the valley gate, which is there on the western side of that picture. And then, while we don't know necessarily what some of these other markers are, you know, the dragon spring, there's some guessing as to what those are, more than likely he went down south around the southern tip. And by the time he turns the corner and goes on the east side, that would have been the Kedron Valley. There would have been ruins strewn down that steep bank. 
so that his donkey or whatever he's riding could not pass by. And so he would have turned around and gone back. But the whole time that he's doing this, he's, the text says that he's inspecting, which means that he's carefully looking at what the problems and where the issues lie. When we rush to build a solution before we get the lay of the land, we could end up causing more damage than we ever meant to. As just kind of a silly example. In college, um, I, I, I linked up with a, a campus ministry. Um, it was a pretty big one. It had about 200 students who were part of it. And I joined the leadership team and I said, I'm going to kick off the worship team. Plenty of talent here. So one week I, I had sign-ups. I got a bunch of people in. I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, we're an hour east of Nashville. You know, we're, we're going to, like, this is going to be so, be amazing band. Get the sign-ups. We start practice. Then come to find out that they already had a band before. <laughs> and that there were some old members of that team who were now kind of upset with the way I went about doing this. There began this tension, this friction between the old and the new members. Now, I learned the hard way the importance of getting a lay of the land before you just start jumping in toward a solution. But Nehemiah knows that getting a lay of the land isn't just looking at the physical land. He knows he needs to get an understanding of the social situation as well. And he's somebody who's wise, man, you learn to ask good questions. And Nehemiah already knew to ask, why is it that the wall hasn't been rebuilt in 94 years? And as he digs into that, he found out, actually, there were some enemies of Israel who've been doing a pretty good job of intimidating the people and cutting the project out from under their legs before they can even get started. And so Nehemiah knows that's going to happen. It could happen. And so that's one, another reason why he goes out in the dark of night, because he knows there are probably agents or moles in the city who will just immediately tell their enemies and cut the project off before he can even tell anybody about it. You see the importance of getting a lay of the land. Actually, Looking at it first, Proverbs 24, 27 says, Prepare your work outside. Get everything ready for yourself in the field. And after that, build your house. This means that if we, as God's people, want to bring Jesus in the midst of our society and our culture, then we need to do a good job of understanding our culture. We don't have to agree with it, but we do got to understand it. Asking questions, figuring out why do people believe the way they do, what is it that they believe, and learn so then we can make a plan for how to share the gospel in the midst of that. Or for those of you who uh, maybe you're in the midst of broken marriages or relationships, or, or you, you have dysfunctional family situation, asking, well, why is it this way? What is going on and why? And understand that when we start to look at a situation honestly, especially those, we may stumble upon the reality that part of it is actually on us. When we start to look at something real, we may see our own part in the brokenness. But if we're approaching these situations as God's servants, then it's not about our ego. We're about restoration. At that point, we can acknowledge our part and then say, Lord, Forgive me for that and show me how to work as your servant and your power toward restoration. 
And so you see that as Nehemiah gets a lay of the land, he's prayerfully listening. He's discerning with others. He's looking at things as they are. But everybody knows you can't just plan forever. There is such thing as analysis paralysis, right? And Nehemiah doesn't get stuck there either. Because then after he makes his plan, he figures out resources, who he needs, that's when he makes the next step, which is restoration starts after we motivate others to do what they should do and join them in it. Restoration starts after we motivate others to do what they should do and join them in it. See, now that Nehemiah is prayerfully discerned with a few others looking at the walls, he's ready for the call to action, to, to motivate the people. But I want us to see how he does that in verse 17. He says to them, he says, you see the trouble we are in. Hold up. What do you mean we, Nehemiah? You just got to Jerusalem. What do you mean we? Or they could have said the opposite. What? What do you mean our problem? <laughs> Nehemiah, you're the man with the resources and the permission. Like, good luck. Thanks for coming. I think it's your problem. But Nehemiah doesn't say this is my problem. He doesn't say this is your problem. He says this is our problem. As a great leader, Nehemiah doesn't try to push the problem on them and say good luck. Nor does he just try to solve it for them. He says, come let us build. Those who serve to benefit from the wall, if they are able to build it, they should be a part of that. But Nehemiah realizes that that he wants to join in this with them. He must. Because I don't know about you, have you ever seen somebody who's been stepping around ruins for a long time, broken relationships and pain? Like they have a really tough time believing or knowing how to ever fix that. And if somebody comes along and say, well, you're doing this wrong and that wrong, why don't you just fix it? They're like, yeah, if I knew how to fix it this whole time, I would have done it already. Or instead, if Nehemiah came up and just did all the work for them, how would they ever grow? Instead, he comes alongside of them. He gives them a vision. And he says, let's do this together. And then as part of motivating him, motivating them, he then shows them how God is actually the one who is at work within them. We all need faithful people who will open our eyes to see where God is at work. This is the part where where Nehemiah breaks out his testify microphone. And he says, hey, the hand of the Lord has been upon me up to this point. Best evidenced by the king gave me permission. So I'm going to open your eyes to the fact that this is God who is doing this. He doesn't try to motivate them by saying, believe in yourselves. Or believe in me. Or trust in the king. Above all, he says, you're God. The God of heaven, the almighty provider. Nehemiah guides them to see how God has already been at work among them. Therefore, reframing it from how are we going to do this to do you realize God is already doing it and you get to go do it in his strength and power. And that reframes everything. But what I want us to see as we turn to look at our own situation is that you and I 
we have one far greater than Nehemiah. His name is Jesus. And then Jesus, <laughs> he looked. Our eternal God saw the state of our world. How we, as human beings, he didn't just come for a city. He came for a world. A world that has been used to walking around ruins of sin, death, slavery for a long time. He has compassion on them. And he says, instead of leaving them to their own devices and their own despair, he comes and he's born in this world. The God who never sleeps took on human flesh and limitation. He felt the need for rest. The God who, who, who was the one who was one with the Father, Jesus, still remained in a constant state of listening. He invited a few others around him. He made a wise plan. He knew that if he revealed his plan too soon, his mission too soon, that that, that that would be ruined as well. So he waits for God's timing. And when the time is right, our Lord, our Messiah, who is walking alongside humanity, steps ahead of them. And this is why he's much greater than any Nehemiah. Because he knew that what he'd come to do was something we could not do for ourselves. And he stepped ahead of us, went to the cross, took on a death and our sin upon himself. And in doing so, he stepped into hell to rob it of its power, and God delivered him out of the grave forever and ever and ever, that he might reign as the king eternal forever, as the greater Nehemiah. Nehemiah, or the greater Nehemiah, Jesus calls us to see the reality of our ruins, that is our sin. But then see the power of God that is at work as His Spirit transforms us. That's our hope, people. That's our hope. And this is why the gospel of Jesus is the only true source of restoration hope we have. I love 1 Peter chapter 2 reframes it like this. It says that those who believe in Jesus are like living stones built upon the cornerstone of Christ. He has restored us from ruin. That he makes us a dwelling place for God. But as living stones, we have this mission to then invite others to come be restored as well. Isn't that amazing? And so Nehemiah calls the people to join. He motivates them based on the power of God and what God is doing, to see what God is doing. And they rally and they say, yes, let us come and build. And they strengthen their hands for the work. But it's still not going to be a smooth road. We see that as soon as the people jump on board, there's somebody waiting to knock them off again. And doesn't that seem kind of typical? See, whenever God begins to challenge the ruined status quo around us, whenever he begins to start moving and shifting and changing things, what, what can we almost predict will happen? Yes, whenever God is working through us, it will stir up resistance or opposition. And so we get to meet Sanbalat, who's from the north. 
Tobiah from the east, Geshem who comes from the south. Each of these men in some way served to benefit, profit off of Israel's despair. We don't necessarily know how. We can take some guesses based on different historical documents, but it is clear that each this little triad here, they serve to have some political or economic benefit from being able to manipulate and control the people of God. And so once they see that something is happening and stirring, they immediately get angry. But once the Jews see that what God is doing, and they muster up the courage to build again after 94 years, these three amigos come right in to try to pop the bubble. And they, how they do it is interesting. Because they don't start with threats. They don't start with violence. But the first step of evil is to try to take our eyes off God and place our eyes on ourselves. It says they jeered. Which if you want to translate that today, basically they were cussing them out. They were speaking all kind of nasty things to them. And their first question is, what is this thing that you are doing? Nehemiah just got done telling him, this is what God is doing. But the enemy is always saying, hey, hey what are you doing? In other words, who do you think you are? And this is exactly how, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, Satan, his first statement, if you really are the Son of God, then... Dot, 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 dot. And see, this is classic. Because the enemy of God knows that once he can take our eyes off of God and place it on ourselves, our confidence will eventually be shot because we are insufficient to do God's mission on our own strength. What are you doing? And then after that, they said, are you rebelling against the king? Now, to be clear, Sambalot and these dudes, they knew that the king had given Nehemiah permission. I guarantee that they've seen the letter. Because it says that, really we get that sense from verse 10. But what they were interested in is trying to make the people second guess what they already knew. They were going to play on past trauma and fear in order to make them step away and quit. Are you sure the king really gave you permission to do this? Because if you're not sure, well, the king of... uh, Persia may be forced to come and destroy Jerusalem again, just like the Babylonians did. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but you know it might happen. And all of a sudden we start entertaining hypotheticals. Because it draws on past wounds that have not been healed. Trauma and fear. You guys see that? But I love the way Nehemiah responds here. And it's a beautiful example of what I like to call holy stubbornness in the Lord. Because first, Nehemiah doesn't waste time or energy on a debate. He doesn't sit there and entertain his fiction. No need. Second, Nehemiah declares that his confidence is in the God of heaven. He says the God of heaven will make us prosper and we are his servants. His confidence, again, is not in himself. It's not in the king. It's in God Almighty. And then next, or last, when the enemy spewed fiction, 
Nehemiah reminded him of his reality. Come on, everybody. Verse 20. They said, since Sambalot and these others are not part of God's people, he says, you have no right in Jerusalem. But you see, sometimes when our eyes have been taken off of God and they're looking at ourselves, it's so easy for, for these old patterns of thinking to come into our minds. Well, who am I? What, what right do I have? What if this falls on its face? What if no one comes with me? What if, what, what if, this, what if they don't care? And these, these thoughts have, have, have already carved a well-worn path in the way that we think. But this is why it's vital that we learn to grip God's word like a sword. That holy resolve means that even if we don't feel it yet, we learn to go back to God's word and say, I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. That the spirit of God has set me free from the law of sin and death. I don't belong to darkness anymore. I am completely and totally his above all else. That I don't have to entertain hell's fiction. Because I've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into marvelous light. Once we realize that God never meant the ruins to be status quo, restoration can begin. So with the confidence and the power of God, these servants step up and they begin to build. And you see the list of all of those who began to build in chapter 3. But I want to come back. This is after 94 years. 94 years. I want to ask you again. What burden has God placed on your heart? Is there something that you feel this holy irritation within you to believe for again? Is there something... Is how might God be moving you in fresh faith and hope? Why not now? Why not through us? For far too long, the church of Jesus have been acting as victims. I have. To the lies of the enemy that consistently tell us, Ah, New England's frozen ground. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And the kingdom of God, there's nothing that can stand ultimately in God's way. But he's waiting for a people to stop believing, to playing the victim card and saying, Lord, we know you love us. You gave your life for us. We are yours above all else. So will you lead us and show us what it means to be your people here and now? I'm tired of accepting that, that well, Boston's just impossible. I'm tired of accepting that our marriages are just broken. I'm tired of accepting that our families are just dysfunctional. I'm tired of accepting, well, I don't know if we'll ever be reconciled. I'm tired of accepting that. Because I believe that God wants to work in and through us as people. Do you believe that? Because once we realize that the ruins were never meant to be status quo, restoration can what? Begin. Lord Jesus, stand with me. Lord Jesus, will you call us, call us our, our eyes higher. But man, we don't start by looking at ourselves. We don't start by looking at our resources. We don't start by looking at the ruins. We start by looking at you. 
And start looking at that you are the God who is recreating all things and you started in our own hearts. And so we have, if we have to start somewhere, Lord, may we at least start and see what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. To see that you didn't just come to walk alongside of us. You walked ahead of us and did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That we might have your very presence living within us as those restored in relationship to you. And so, Lord, with our eyes starting there, may you then take our eyes out and say, Lord, just, just show me what's next. We, we're not the saviors. We are insufficient to restore the ruins in our own strength, God. But you are most, you're certainly sufficient, the almighty God. And you love to involve us in your work. So will you give us the faith to believe again? The hope to see this world. That no matter what happens on November 3rd, our, 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 our hope is not in a leader. Our hope is in you. And you are the God Almighty who has never stopped working since the foundation of time. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for seeing us. Thank you for restoring us. And now move within us and through us. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said.